In 2006, a young woman was just beginning her adult life, and everything was going great. She had a great education and a great job. But then everything changed in the blink of an eye when she disappeared. I'm your host, Koi, and this is the story of Jennifer Kessie. Jennifer Kessie was born on May 20, 1981 in New Jersey, but she was raised in Tampa, Florida. Growing up, Jennifer was a very smart and curious kid. She was interested in reading, and she loved learning new things. When Jennifer graduated high school, she went to college in Orlando at the University of Central Florida, which is just about a two-hour drive from Tampa, and this was perfect for her. She had a really close relationship with her parents, so going to school nearby worked out great. Jennifer graduated college in 2003 with a degree in finance. She decided to stay in Orlando and she took a job at Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company, where she became a finance manager. Now, we're going to go down a quick rabbit hole here. The company that Jennifer worked for was owned by David Siegel. David and his wife Jackie are in the process of building one of the largest and most expensive houses in the United States, called the Versilles House, which as of 2021, it is still under construction, and it has been under construction since 2004. Well, all right, I guess this isn't going to be too much of a rabbit hole, because we're going to discuss David again in here in a little bit. So that's just a little bit of a backstory on him. By 2006, everything seemed to be going great for Jennifer. She had a boyfriend named Rob, and she bought a condo. In January, she and Rob took a vacation to the Virgin Islands. Jennifer and Rob returned from vacation on Sunday, January 22nd. She stayed that night at his house, and then they both left for work that Monday morning on January 23rd, 2006. At 6 p.m., Jennifer left work. She called her dad around 6.15 on her drive home. She then called Rob around 10 p.m. before going to bed. Jennifer was also in the habit of calling or texting Rob whenever she left for work in the morning. So, it was a little out of the ordinary when she didn't call him that next morning. Then, whenever he tried to call Jennifer, the phone just went to voicemail. But things continued to get weird throughout the day. When Jennifer didn't show up for work and didn't call in, her boss knew something odd had to have been going on because that just wasn't something Jennifer would do. So he ended up calling her parents. When they couldn't get a hold of her on the phone, they immediately began their trip from Tampa to Orlando. When her parents arrived at the condo, they noticed that her car was missing. Once they were inside, they found a wet towel that was inside the bathroom and a few different pairs of clothes that were laid out. Their thoughts were that she showered, then got ready for work, and the clothes that were laid out were probably the ones that she was trying to decide between for work. But this only concerned them more. If she left for work but didn't show up, then what happened? That afternoon, Jennifer's parents contacted the Orlando Police Department to report her missing. Initially, the police told them that there was a chance that Jennifer had left on her own. After all, she was an adult. Maybe she wanted some time alone. But even though there was that possibility, police still took a missing persons report, and later that night, a detective reached out to Jennifer's family. Over the next 24 hours, an extensive search was underway for Jennifer. 
Police started canvassing the area trying to talk to anyone who may have seen Jennifer recently. Her family and friends, they began passing out flyers to anyone around the area. Jennifer's story was featured on local news where a picture of her car was posted. They urged anyone with any information to contact the police. Back at Jennifer's condo, there was no signs of forced entry. All of her windows were shut and locked, and all of her doors were intact. So police theorized that on the morning of the 24th, Jennifer got ready for work. She walked out of the condo, and she walked to her car. And at some point along that time, she was abducted. On Thursday, January 26th, a resident at an apartment complex only a mile away from Jennifer's noticed a car outside that looked very similar to the one that they saw in the news. Around 8 a.m., they called the cops to report the suspicious vehicle. When cops arrived, they were able to confirm that the suspicious vehicle was in fact Jennifer's 2004 black Chevy Malibu. The investigators photographed the vehicle and they began processing it for any evidence. They collected a small portion of a fingerprint and a small DNA fiber, which neither of these led to anything conclusive. While processing the car, there were certain areas where you would expect to find some signs of DNA or fingerprints from areas that are touched in everyday use such as a steering wheel, gear shifter, door handle, the AC controls, or the radio, but there was nothing on any of these, which led police to believe that the car had been wiped down and cleaned by somebody. Some of the key things that weren't in the car and also were not inside the condo were Jennifer's cell phone, her iPod, keys, purse, and her briefcase. Investigators tried to do a phone ping for her cell phone, but the phone was turned off. I really can't thank everyone enough for all of the support for this podcast and for my book. I know that just listening to this, you've already done a lot to help me, but I'm going to ask for one favor. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, if you're able to, please leave a rating or a review for the show. It helps me out and it helps other people find the show. It doesn't even have to be a good rating. If you absolutely hate the show and you want to tell me that, you can write how much you hate it. Whether you hate it or not, thank you for the support. While they were canvassing the area by where the car was found, there was a small glimpse of hope when one of the neighbors had a security camera that pointed towards the road. But this wasn't the type of security camera that we see a lot today. It didn't actually take a video. It took photos, and it snapped one photo every three seconds. In the photos, it shows an unidentified person dropping off Jennifer's car around noon on January 24th, the day that she went missing. The person walks down the street away from the car. As the person passed in front of the house, the camera took a series of snapshots. But the person who had the camera had a fence in their front yard. And the fence was this black metal fence with spaced out bars and then a bar running along the top of the fence. In each photo, the person's face lined up directly with the fence post that ran along the top of the fence, blocking their face. One journalist went on to describe that this suspect is the luckiest person of interest ever. The FBI was requested to help examine the photo. They weren't able to determine if the person was a male, female, or what their race was, but they did come to the conclusion that the person stood between 5'3 and 5'5. Five five. 
It also appeared that the person was dressed in workman's clothes, like some sort of jumpsuit style. Now, the next part I've never heard of happening in a case. It may happen more than I realized, but I thought it was pretty cool. Whether it's because of how close they are to Orlando or another reason, NASA was asked to help with enhancing the photo. So NASA did their thing, and they did make the photo much more clear, but they still weren't able to find anything in the photo that would identify a suspect. Investigators begin interviews with Jennifer's friends and family. None of her relatives seemed to have a motive to have wanted her gone. Rob had an alibi. He actually lived three hours away in Fort Lauderdale, and police were able to place him there at the time, so they knew that he wasn't involved. There were a few people that stood out a little bit more. Jennifer had an ex-boyfriend, who apparently had recently wanted to get back together with her, and he was upset that she wouldn't get back with him. Detectives interrogated this ex, and they were ultimately able to rule him out as having any involvement. The apartment complex that Jennifer lived at was under construction for a big expansion that they were doing. Jennifer told family members that on multiple occasions, the construction workers had made her feel uncomfortable by catcalling her, whistling at her as she walked by, and just in general harassing her. It was disturbing enough to her that whenever a construction worker had to do something in or directly around her apartment, she would always call a family member just to have them on the phone until the construction worker left. Investigators interviewed several of the workers, but they weren't able to narrow it down to anyone specifically that may have been involved. Then there was her workplace. There were rumors that a manager at her job tried to pursue a relationship with Jennifer, but she turned him down. Police interviewed this manager several times, but they were able to rule him out as a suspect also. In May of 2007, David Siegel offered a $1 million reward for information leading to Jennifer, but there were some demands with this reward money. Most rewards that are offered up, it's for information leading to the arrest of a suspect, whether the victim's dead or alive. David's reward stated that for someone to claim the money, Jennifer had to be found alive, and there was a deadline of July 4th. While that $1 million reward was never claimed, there is still a $5,000 reward for information leading to Jennifer, whether she's dead or alive, and that's through the Central Florida Crime Line. In 2010, the FBI took over Jennifer's case. In November of 2020, Jennifer's case took an unexpected turn. For years, there were questions as to what happened, but police released a photo in November that put things in perspective a little bit more. When Jennifer's car was discovered, part of processing the car was taking photos of the entire car. Well, police released a photo of the hood of the car from the day that they found it. In the photo, the hood of the car is dusty, whether it's from pollen or dirt or from the construction dust. On the driver's side of the hood, it appears that the dust is disturbed, where someone could have been thrown down on the hood. Then, there's what seems to be clear drag marks from fingers going down the front of the hood, suggesting that Jennifer may have been abducted thrown on the hood of her car. There was a struggle, and then she left the drag marks as she was being pulled away from the hood. You can see the photo of the car on Instagram at Crime Nerds Podcast. As of 2021, this is where Jennifer's case stands. The FBI and Orlando Police Department still follow up on every lead that comes into them, no matter how big or small. Between law enforcement and private investigators, hundreds of thousands of dollars have been spent on the investigation into Jennifer's disappearance. Jennifer's father, Drew, has organized a GoFundMe account to help pay for private investigators in this case. If you're able to help, the GoFundMe account is going to be linked in the show notes below. 
And this is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode of Crime Nerds. Thank you for listening.